Hello and welcome to the Golf Shake Podcast. My name is Kieran Clark and this week I am joined by a man who as well, I asked him for his season highlights for 2018 and well, he sent me through a list of achievements and places he's been to and courses he's played and stuff he's done that would probably fill up most golfers' lifetimes. And his name is Andrew Picken. He is a Golf Shake ambassador. He has done so much this year, which is fascinating. He's traveled all across the UK, played so many different courses. He's been over to America. He's played TPC Sawgrass. And if you followed the Golf Shake website most recently, he's delving into some fascinating research regarding golf's relationship and connection uh, with the with veterans of the First World War. So Andrew is a fascinating guy, and we have him here delighted to do so on the Golf Shake podcast. So Andrew, welcome along to the Golf Shake podcast. How are you on this November afternoon? Very well, thank you, Kieran. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, that's quite a big build-up, that is. That's that's going to take some living up to, but we'll see what we can do. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you'll manage. Uh, we obviously like to give you the big, the big introduction there. We set you up, but uh, certainly just looking at what you've done this year, you know, the I mean, just a staggering number of courses and places you've been to and people you've met. It's just a, you know, you, you know, you can you can pretty much tell that you are retired these days because you have a lot of time to fill and you've you've certainly filled it with a lot of fantastic activities. Uh, so we'd love to delve into that on this episode of the Golf Shake podcast. And obviously, coming into this time of year, Andrew, obviously it's uh, November, so the season's more or less over. It's a time of reflection uh, for golfers when we consider what we've done in the past season. We look ahead to next year and go and see maybe the courses we want to go and play, maybe some nice golf trips, uh, try and see what we want to do in 2019. And this podcast here will maybe steer you in certain directions because in the past year, Andy has been to he's been to Kent. He's played a variety of courses there, a wonderful part of the world, obviously, where it's a great history of championship golf. Uh, the Open's going back to Royal St. George's in 2020. Uh, Andrew had a chance to go and play there uh, this year. Also, he went to earlier in the year uh, to Carnoustie Country, which is an organisation that's brought together 34 golf courses across Angus and Perthshire, uh, all around, obviously, Carnoustie itself, which, of course, hosted uh, this year's Open. So we'll delve into Carnoustie, Panmuir, Blair Gary, courses like that, You know, obviously some of the, the finest layouts in Scotland, which is obviously a, a wonderful potential golf break for you, and a variety of other things as well. Northern Ireland, of course, which will be hosting the, the Open next year at uh, Royal Port Rush. Andrew was there as well, believe it or not, uh, and played that course and a variety of ones around it on a causeway tour. So at least destinations are obviously you know, potential for you next year. And we'll delve into that and provide some insight behind what made these areas such a great experience to visit the courses, the accommodation, the places themselves. And hopefully we'll add some um, detail behind that and uh, give you a bit of a steer you in a certain direction if you're looking for a golf break for 2019. But first of all, Andrew, starting with something that was rather unique uh, this year for you. And you may have, the listeners here and regular followers of Golf Shake may have followed Andrew's story before as we featured it on the Golf Shake website about making a hole-in-one. So, Andrew, you made a hole-in-one, I believe, in 2017 at Kettleston Park Golf Club during a charity program when you were representing Team Golf Shake. And that got you through to a, a final event the hole-in-one club at Glen Eagle. So, Andrew, tell us about how this all came about uh, before you got to that final at Glen Eagles. What is the hole-in-one club and how did you get involved with it in the first place? Right, well, um, I've been a member of the hole-in-one club now for three years and 
it costs the, the princely sum of five pounds per year. And in essence, um, it gives you insurance in the event that you have a hole in one in a recognised tournament that's being run by a PGA professional. So having had three years of uh, no particular success, uh, I organised and captained a team to play at Kedleston Park um, and the charity was in support of uh, Rainbow's Hospice for Life Limited Children and Teenagers which it's a Muslim based charity and I've seen the work that they do and it's exceptional um, it really is so good a long story short we got a team of four together um, by a, a wonderful coincidence it was the uh, first game of the season that I've been able to play with my son because he's out on a golf scholarship in the States at the moment so he joined me as part of the team and um, as I wrote in the story it was quite an exceptional experience um, because actually it was a decent golf shot probably one of the few golf shots that I've played of that quality all year um, he'd hit it 20 feet left of the pin one of the other playing partners had gone 30 foot to the right and the uh, the call to me as I stood on the tee was, well, put it in between that and by gum did I. <laughs> um, one bounce, little check spin into the hole. Um, I hate to think what the blood pressure was like as it was happening because we all saw it happening. There was a group in front watching the green. They were shouting and screaming. It was just incredible. Um, the, the event itself is followed by a charity auction and a formal dinner. So there was about 150 people in the clubhouse. Mm -hmm. um, luckily, I do have other golf insurance that covered me for part of the bar bill. I won't explain exactly how much I did spend that night, but I did end up having to leave the car where it was and had to add a taxi onto the... But it was just an incredible event. Um, <laughs> the charity was amazing. They presented me with a bottle of champagne, um, uh, I got to meet a lifelong hero of mine. Um, I don't know if you remember Roy McFarland, used to be the England football captain. All right, yes, yeah. Yeah, well, Roy McFarland was one of my boyhood heroes as I was growing up um, footballing. He used to play for Derby County, my team, and uh, we actually beat his team. <laughs> which, oh, dear. <laughs> so to have the opportunity to meet him under those circumstances when I'd got a few sherbets on board was wonderful. And it was very <laughs> magnanimous. It was brilliant. Um, but having having got through, uh, there's a, a very sort of detailed validation procedure that the hole-in-one club go through. They check all the details and then details of the hole-in-one are registered on their website. So mm -hmm. you can monitor throughout the year how many other people um, have qualified. Um, so for the next few months, I was looking at this thing every day and wishing all these other people who potentially could qualify as well some bad fortune and not being able to get in because um, I had an injury and was uh, a little bit worried that if there was more than 12, then it would go to a qualifying final. Um, there was a bunch of people who were successful in September. I think there was 20 people in 2017 that qualified. So the hole-in-one club had to organise a, um, a United Kingdom-wide final, a qualifying final, and the location they chose was uh, Glen Eagles, the Ryder Cup course. So mm -hmm. we got yeah. all of our competitors. We were invited to go to that location. Um, all expenses were covered 
stood on the tee with TV cameras announced and without a shadow of a doubt, it's the most terrified I've ever been on a golf course in my life. Um, It it was a wonderful experience because the the Glen Eagles Resort, um, I've not got to pay the Kings and the Queens yet. They're still on the bucket list, but the Ryder Cup course is a wonderful Mm -hmm. place. And Glen Eagles as a resort is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I, I, it, it really was a stunning experience. And to cut a very long story short, um, I was I, I made a couple of really bad errors and uh, I knew that sort of the 14th hole and onwards I was struggling. We actually played a blended course. So it was a blend of the championship tees, the white tees and the yellow tees because there were people there who were sort of plus two handicappers and then there were people who were 24 handicappers. So the blended course was designed to make it fair to everyone. Um, And I made a real, really bad error on par three because I I took the, the distance from the card as opposed to actually checking and physically checking the distance and ended up putting a tee shot in a, a toilet 30 yards past the green literally flew the green and into one of these porter cabins <laughs> at the side of a little so that wasn't exactly a great moment um but as i stood on the 14th day i thought well i'm never going to be here again i'm just going to go for this um and ended up parring the last four holes and it i came in sixth wow um, yeah, which then qualified me the following March to meet up with the, a dozen of us at Manchester Airport and to jump onto a, a Virgin Atlantic flight to be taken over to uh, to Orlando. Yeah, yeah, fantastic! And I have to just reiterate what you said there about Glen Eagles. Obviously, a spectacular resort in Perthshire, heart of Scotland. Uh, they have the free courses there, the PGA Centenary, which is a Ryder Cup course, obviously a staggering location. Your views are just incredible all around you, panoramic. Uh, the King's course is perhaps uh, one of the finest inland courses in Scotland. I know that we had a um, fellow Golf Shake ambassador, uh, Matt Holbrook, on the podcast a few months ago, and he said that it was his favourite golf course that he has played, so one to check out there. And the Queen's course at Glen Eagles too is renowned as being one of the most kind of visually pretty courses in, in, in the UK. It certainly is. You know, It's a bit shorter. It's still challenging, but it has some of the most enjoyable holes you'll probably see anywhere. And it's a wonderful part of the world. And as Andrew said, they're a staggering, a staggeringly kind of you know, beautiful uh, resort and uh, so welcoming and great hospitality and all the rest of it. So certainly you know, it's obviously relatively high end, but you can pick out some packages if you wish. And uh, it's worth uh, checking out if you want to kind of a, uh, go out there a little bit and try and uh, find some a really you know, incredible experience but Andrew you mentioned you're coming through the obviously your courageous golf got you through and you qualified uh, for the obviously the kind of the golden ticket in many ways at Manchester Airport and that was going to take you across to America to go and play TPC Sawgrass obviously home of the Players Championship one of the most iconic golf courses in the world everyone knows about the 17th hole the island par 3 there obviously the, actually the, most of that course you know there's so much water around it's so challenging so this deceptive and over the years as that championship has grown in stature to become one of the biggest events in golf the, the golf course's uh, notoriety has increased uh, with it so going there Andrew you mentioned that you know 
standing on that first tee at Glen Eagles with the, the cameras watching you, the people watching you, that was intimidating. But surely when you went to Sawgrass and you stood in the 17th, surely that Honestly, was no. the most intimidating <laughs> tee shot you've ever faced. The, the, probably the worst, but definitely the most intimidating tee shot was the one on the Dye Valley course on the day before because that was the first day of a competition that was being run. Mm-hmm. So between the, the 12 of us that were invited to go, there was actually a um, a two-day competition with some absolutely incredible prizes that had been put together. So it was really competitive between the whole group. Uh, and I stood on the first tee on the Dye Valley course. Um, I'd managed uh, to invite my son to come over as a guest because obviously he was already in the States and uh, there was the capability of him joining me. So he was able to witness uh, and take part in this incredible once in a lifetime experience as well as me. And I ended up hitting, I'm trying to think the best way to describe the experience. It was quite Mm. surreal because it was as if I was stood watching myself play in the tee shot. Uh, But it's not something that you'd want to replay over and over again because the tee shot didn't even get over the end of my tee box, never mind past the ladies. It was awful. It was the worst. But the great thing was that all the other people that we were playing with were so hyped up themselves. Nobody actually took the mickey or anything like that. So I just waited and I says, right, okay. And then I absolutely nailed the three wood off. There was so much adrenaline went into it and then off we went. But that, I still wake up with a cold sweat dreaming about that tee shot. <laughs> it was horrific. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, the sawgrass <laughs> experience as a whole, because you've got two stadium courses there that are just iconic in their own right. The Dye Valley course is a wonderful piece of design, really. Um, and mm-hmm. the experience, because part of the package was that we were all allocated four caddies. Um, that obviously it's a very busy resort and they do need to make sure the pace of play is maintained. And we were very, very lucky um, when we played there, the, the four caddies that we were allocated, their sense of humor was just fantastic. And it just adds entirely to the experience. Um, we got to have a presentation dinner there. We, we had picnics on the lawns at the point where the, um, uh, the TPC, uh, trophies are presented. Uh, we had a guided tour from the uh, the Redcoats, the volunteers that operate in the area, because as you would imagine, the memorabilia, mm-hmm. it is almost like a living museum. Uh, and if, if you are considering visit the resort, make sure you give yourself the time to, to enjoy that experience and to be able to see um, there's the barber's chair, um, there's there's some wonderful pictures and paintings and photographs and um, the barber's chair by the way just backtracking that's the chair that's occupied by whichever professional scores the worst score during the day of each individual competition and it's in the locker room and all the other professionals are then able to rip the michael out of them so it's something that nobody wants to do but um the facility is just tremendous and as you can imagine the, the quality of it and the service that's provided um with it being such a premier resort it really is phenomenal um I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you i was looking at golf pick packages for a couple of years down the line um i enjoyed it so much that i'm seriously thinking about going back and i've been quite 
pleasantly surprised actually at the package prices that are on mm-hmm. offer. Thoroughly recommend it as an experience. If you're into your golf, that really is something that you can talk about in the clubhouse or the bar afterwards and it's just such an incredible experience no it sounds like it and i can imagine that it would be but obviously looking at the tpc uh, sawgrass course itself the championship course there and the finishing holes to that course are obviously particularly iconic you know it's that wonderful stretch i think they call it the gauntlet uh there they all they love their names for several holes and the little collection of holes they love, love calling them with names like amen corner augusta and stuff like that. they love giving them names and yeah. the name there is a gauntlet so players trying to win at sawgrass win the players championship they have to come through that the last three holes there we have the 16th the par five the water around the, the fairway and the green Obviously, the 17th, the par three, and then the 18th hole, which is probably one of the most intimidating uh, shots I could have possibly think of of watching on television, that 18th tee with water all the way up the left-hand side. So, Andrew, you mentioned the great finish that you had at Glen Eagles to qualify for this particular, obviously, you know, this particular experience. But how did you finish your round on that fearsome stretch at Sawgrass? Um, 16 was a challenge. Um, the fairways uh-huh. there are as good as some greens that I've played, and so that there's you get slightly out of position, and you really got to be strategic in the way in which you manage yourself. Uh, and I strategically chipped from some trees straight into the water, and then proceeded to follow the line of the lake all the way down. Um, annually, there's 125,000 golf balls are put into the lake that surrounds 16 and 17. So I was in good company uh, and I could see how easy it was. But um, to to give you kind of an idea that out of our group of 12, and there were some plus handicap golfers amongst us, uh, in the two days competition, we lost 166 golf balls between us. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) That is the level of difficulty that is provided by this course. But to be perfectly honest, as we played, um, all the stands were being prepared, all the spectator areas were being prepared. Mm-hmm. There must have been two or three hundred workmen um, who were acting as spectators. It, it was just the atmosphere was electric. It was incredible. Um, so you get on to the 17th. And I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, for the three to four weeks before uh, I'd been going up to the local driving range and I'd, I'd actually got myself a flag that I knew was 137 yards away. I can still remember the distances. How good is that? 137 yards away and I'd been <laughs> practising trying different shots into this particular distance. Obviously, I had no clue as to what the weather was going to be. Um, the pressure's ramped up because there's photographs beforehand that they want to use for promotion. They've got TV cameras there recording it. There's all the workmen around. Um, and my, my son went first, and he ended up just slightly misjudging it and overshot the green. Uh, with my shot, I ended up pitching it onto the green, um, and it ran through onto the footbridge at the back of the green. And I've, I've got a... Um, Mm-hmm. a treasured video of me chipping back up the footbridge and lipping out for a two. Um, but um, <laughs> that that was 
quite difficult but just to actually be on the green and to be treading in the footsteps and being able to sort of you, you can click onto um any of the youtube channels and and see all of the professional golfers all of the golfing heroes that's gone before and the different incidents that's happened at that particular location it's supposedly mm -hmm. the most photographed golf hole in the world and i, I couldn't understand why it was just incredible um so that was a, a phenomenal experience to come away from uh, 17 with a four, but happy with a four. Um, on the 18th, I hit a decent drive, but my son passed me his phone and said, um, can you video my drive on 18? It's absolutely iconic. And he proceeded to absolutely nail his drive, 300 yards exactly where you want it to be faded from the water to the middle of the fairway and he played his second shot bearing in mind it's a par five and he's in the bunker left in two so he gets out of the bunker onto the green and walks off with a birdie and to say that he was pleased and proud of himself was an understatement we then looked at the video that i'd taken and unfortunately, I'm not really into all of these new gizmos, and I'd had the phone on selfie mode. So all all you can see is my sunglasses and my cap, and you can see a little tiny reflection of his golf shot in my sunglasses. It, it's got to go down as the worst epic dad fail in history. Oh, dear. It, it was a nightmare. But because the place is so busy, we couldn't then go back and let him try it again. <laughs> so I'm still getting grief from him from that. I really am. But it, uh, it, it was quite, quite an experience, quite an experience. Um, oh, I can imagine. And I think you're right. I think that's probably the, the Picking Family submission to the Dad Fail <laughs> Hall of Fame right there. I think that's going to be hard to beat. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, I suppose, in a way, though, you, we, we kind of got to see your reaction all the way around, I guess, well, through the glasses, yeah. I guess. But uh, but there we are. However, you have mentioned uh, that this happened on the Golf Shake podcast, and that makes it official. Uh, so, Alex, uh, if you're listening, you know, we all know, we believe you, you made a lovely birdie on the 18th at Sawgrass. It happened. It wasn't seen on camera, but it's now part of history on the Golf Shake podcast. So obviously, you know, fantastic. And as you said there, I think it's a premier golf resort. Florida is obviously a, a very popular destination. Certainly, we come into this time of year over the winter into the early spring where golfers in the UK are trying to escape from the perils of the winter weather. And Florida is a very popular place to go to. And certainly, uh, Sawgrass has the name recognition and the experience you get there is certainly worth checking out and we will link uh, Andrew's articles he wrote about that experience uh, on Golf Shake to this podcast link so you can go and see more detail about that and, um, and maybe try and be inspired yourself to go over there and try and walk in the, the footsteps of Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas, and indeed Andrew Picken. You know, he joins the list of legends who have taken on at TPC Sawgrass. But moving on now, Andrew, to something a little bit closer to home. As I said at the start of the podcast, earlier uh, this year, you had a chance to go and experience golf in Kent. And obviously Kent is part of the world where it's renowned for its courses all down the coastline and further inland. Obviously the Open Championship is going back to Royal St. George's in a couple of years' time. And other courses down there that have a great history, you include Royal St. Ports and the Princes and, and so on. They all have a great championship legacy to them and they've uh, become renowned for being one of the, the finest uh, stretches of golf land in England. 
and you had the chance to go there and play a variety of courses. There are likes of Leeds Castle, Hever Castle, London Golf Club that most recently hosted a European Senior Tour event, uh, Little Stone Golf Club as well, and the Royal St. Ports, Royal St. George's and North Foreland. So, Andrew, coming at you as kind of a, a general look at golf in Kent, and for golfers in England and perhaps even further afield who are looking for a, a golf break destination for next year to go and stay a few days and play two or three, three, four golf courses maybe when they're when they're there. What would, how would you sell golf in Kent to them as an overall experience? As as an overall experience, it is absolutely. I've, I've been playing the game for thirty lots of years, and the period that we spent we spent in the kent area with the quality of the courses the variety of the courses the welcome we received was as good as any of the uh, locations i've been to um what we did was um obviously kent's known as the the garden uh, of the of England and there's an awful lot of hops and there's breweries so what we did was the accommodation that we had um, was primarily coaching inns with a little bit of real ale that were very much geared up to the golfing markets um, and we positioned ourselves found an absolutely fabulous pub um, where we stayed for the duration and then travelled out to the courses and you have there are opportunities there across every single range. Um, for example, Leeds Castle, um, that's a nine-hole golf course. Um, it's the only time when I've ever been doing a review that I've actually had golfers approach me because obviously I, I wear the logo um, material, the golf-shaped material when I'm out doing these reviews. Uh, and they asked me not to give too good a review mm-hmm. because um, I felt it was a hidden gem and they didn't want too many people getting to know about it. Um, and playing down towards the Leeds Castle and the moat, it's absolutely picturesque. It's beautiful. Um Heaver Castle has some great accommodation on board. Some phenomenal golf courses. A choice of three, including a little nine-holer. Um, really excellent facility, but much more modern and much more geared to sort of the American type of styling. Um, you, you then look towards North Foreland, uh, which I was very, very impressed with. The 18-hole course there was superb. Um, with an excellent clubhouse with a very traditional type of feel to it. But in addition to that, they had a nine-hole facility um, that was built by one of the um, ex-owners of the News of the World, but designed and had influences from some epic designers. I think from memory, Braid, James Braid had involvement in it. Uh, And then they have within the car park mm-hmm. a little halfway house that's very much like a cafe much more popular and it's used almost as a as a feeder into the main club now i went down on a tuesday morning and there must have been 200 220 people playing that course on a tuesday morning uh, and that was the nine hole course and it really brought home to me the value of the shortened version wow. of the game and the fact that north foreland have got the best of both worlds really because they've been used the main course is an open qualifying mm-hmm. venue in the past but they've also got this um shorter nine hole course that was phenomenal uh, and to be honest they aren't particularly marquee venues within the kent area because um, london golf club is just exceptional 
it's a European tour um, property. So you're going to, you know that if the European tour are affiliated to it, the quality that's going to be linked into that is astonishingly good. Um, and I don't disagree. The welcome we received there and playing the, um, the international course was just an experience I'll never forget. Um, it really is a stunning layout. And from the moment that you drive into the, the venue, um, you drive into the, to the front gate and are checked by the security. And then it's a mile long drive to actually get to the point where you do the bag drop. But you're, you're driving, even though you're relatively close to London, you're driving through some wonderful scenery. Um, the design and layout of those courses, the way in which they've got de definition of the fairways and the grasses. Um, mm -hmm. I tried to do some video of how good it was from some of the elevated tees when you can see the grasses because it looked like sea, the movement of sea and waves. Uh, and I just couldn't possibly do it justice. It's a brilliant venue. Um, we talk about Littleston. Littleston as a golfing Probably last year, the greens that I played at Littleston were the best greens I played, uh, bar none. They were in such a marvellous condition. Um, I was very fortunate in that um, myself and my colleague, we followed the green staff out. We decided to have an early morning tea time. So literally the greens it was millionaires golf we were the only people on the course the green staff were ironing the greens prior to us playing them and they were astonishing um and again <laughs> um one of my favorite designers alistair mckenzie had some real input in there that the par threes on the, that location are stunning um there's also a little golf course next door that that's Probably not the best way to describe it. Littleston Warren is mm -hmm. probably the, the younger brother to Littleston itself. Littleston has been used as an open qualifying venue over a number of years, and its quality is, is superb. Littleston Warren is actually used by a lot of the scratch and very low handicap golfers who are member at Littleston because their greens are actually smaller and more difficult to reach on this links layout. So I would definitely advocate if you're going to go to that area make the time to play both the the welcome that we got at littleston was just phenomenal um and then you, you talk about royal sank ports previous open venue i have to say that um we played rcp in 30 mile an hour winds um it absolutely beat me up and thrashed me with a stick. I, I can't remember during the course of this year losing that many <laughs> golf balls. But I came off, went into the clubhouse for a beer and still loved every <laughs> single second of the experience. Um, Sarah Sturk is a, a real supporter of um, uh, Royal St. Ports and um, I'm, I'm trying to think. I can't think from memory mm -hmm. her quote, but she loves the place. And I can quite see why the design, the structure, the tradition, the heritage. Um, we weren't supposed to be staying in the clubhouse, but we were so welcomed. Um, 
we stayed there for for three hours and they've got a a book in there that's for visitors comments that goes back to the turn of the century and it's got a, a wonderfully quirky sense of humor there's there's comments in there that's been put in by the club dog and all this kind of it, it, it's a fabulous venue to visit um and then of course you've got the Big Daddy, which is Royal St. George's, which is where the Open is being held in 2020. That was an incredible experience. Um, we treated ourselves to a caddy. And mm. what I would suggest is that if you are going to play that venue, in order to be able to get the most out of it, definitely use the local caddies. Make sure you, you book and you pay the... Um, the minimum fee because it added so much value because in addition to them being able to give you guidance and assistance around the course you've got playing partners who've got years worth of experience on the course and all of them are to be honest they were so entertaining with all of the stories and all of the background and oh did you realize we're taking this shot from this is the position where in one particular open uh, do you realize the extent of this bunker and talking about the developments it was a wonderful experience um one that i would do again tomorrow given the chance um accommodation in that area is very very easy to pick up on if you if you check out the website golf in kent you will see there that not only have they mm. got links to the golf but they've also got links to recommended accommodation um and you can get from food point of view, you can go from coaching inns to really comfortable type food up to and including Michelin star restaurants, all of which are in the very close vicinity um, of these courses, because a lot of these courses developed and evolved um, for the benefit of um, london-based members so to such an extent that some of the early train companies would actually put on special trains on a friday afternoon in order to bring the members down to there was trams that would be available from deal to take um, golfers to the golf course the they had mast systems in front of the mm -hmm. clubhouse where flags would be flown that could be seen from the variety of hotels that were in the area in the bay. Uh, so they'd use binoculars and the flags would indicate whether or not it was a members only day. So don't bother going here, try Littleston or try Royal St. Ports. So they're all in a real sort of approximate area. You could literally, you could base yourself in that area um, and never come home. <laughs> literally, it's that good. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. And Andrew, just listening to that there, I think, you know, I feel inspired to go there now. I think everybody listening to this will feel the same way where you've sold it so well. Uh, you know, the quality of the golf courses there, obviously those of a great history. Some of the lesser known ones there as well clearly have a, a, a fantastic quality to them and a great welcome and um, deliver a wonderful experience. So certainly golf in Kent is uh, one destination that I think we should all try and tick off at some point and we'll certainly link this to Golf in Kent and indeed Andrew's articles on the Golf Shake website too. He's reviewed all these different courses over the past year 
And uh, again, you can delve into more detail as to what made these such a, a wonderful experience uh, for everybody who's been there. So again, Kent, a wonderful destination. We'll see it obviously showcased uh, in two years' time uh, when the Open returns for, I think, yeah. is it the 14th time to Royal St. George? It's been there for an awful lot of times through the years, and uh, it's back again in 2020. Of course, it was last year in 2011 when Darren Clark completed that seemingly improbable victory later on in his career. But moving on now, Andrew, to another great destination that's been in kind of the news and in the spotlight over the past year or so. Obviously, back in July, we had the Open Championship held at Carnoustie Golf Links Championship course there when Francesco Molinari won so brilliantly, becoming the first Italian to win the Claret Jug and indeed win a major championship in the men's game. But obviously, Carnoustie is really the, the highlight of what is a wonderful part of the world for golf throughout the county of Angus uh, and also nearby Perthshire. Great part of the world. So many great golf courses there. And Carnoustie Country itself is this kind of common, brings them all together into 34 golf courses across this kind of essentially like an hour you know, all within an hour of each other, essentially, and uh, can deliver, obviously, a, a, in terms of the courses and the accommodation and the, the venues. I mean, it's just there's so much to enjoy there. And again, it's in, within close proximity to so many other places as well, because uh, Carnoos is just a short drive away from the city of Dundee. You have the city of Perth a bit further south, and also, indeed, you're only essentially... Uh, 45 minutes away from St Andrews. So it kind of is uh, kind of the heart of the, the golf world in Scotland and uh, it's certainly worth uh, experiencing. And Andrew, you had a chance to go to sample Carnoustie Country uh, recently and you, when you were there, you played the likes of Carnoustie itself. You, you walked in the footsteps of the great Ben Hogan who won the Open there in 1953. You also practised uh, famously that year at nearby Pan Muir Golf Club. And also at the likes courses in that area include the likes of Montrose, uh, Blair Gary, which is a wonderful heathland uh, venue uh, in Perthshire, which is two courses there, uh, the, which is just a, a wonderful spot. Uh, having previously hosted European tour events, uh, it's a place I've been to. My, my father's a member there. He's quite a lucky guy. Have been been there, and uh, it's a great spot. And also Murray's Hall. Uh, just outside Perth, which is a, a very nice stay and play venue. So, Andrew, going to Carnoustie Country, you know, experiencing golf in Scotland, walking in the footsteps of history, how was that for you? Um, it's as much fun as you can have with your clothes on. That is the best. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> That's a validation for you. <laughs> the, the overall experience of that trip was exceptional. The hospitality that we were shown... Um, was literally off the scale. Um, we were introduced to a uh, an up and coming um, a, a gin bothy that uh, was operating in the, in the local area and introduced to local food and local produce as part of the trip. Uh, and that's something that I, I do like to do whenever I go on these trips. I do like to try and immerse myself in the, the local gastronomy and all the rest of it. And that was stunning. Uh, we went to Edzel, um, which is a wonderful golf course. Uh, and mm -hmm. just by the first tee, uh, is a hotel that has the world record for the amount of whiskies that are available for sale in one location. Um, I can't remember at the moment just how many they are, but they'd actually got a guy there who um, has has written books. Uh, he's like the equivalent of a whiskey sommelier, and he was matching whiskies to food and 
that as an experience was just incredible one that i will probably never forget and that's outside of the golfing um, arena because it mm-hmm. all of the golf because golf is so important in that in that community all of the other things feed into it and you can if you don't restrict yourself with your view you don't blink yourself just to the golf there are so many opportunities that avail themselves to you by checking out the local area checking out the local foods and that's something that we were pointed towards and and it was exceptional it really was um the the experience of playing at panmure was one that sort of lit a fire under me in relation to looking for the heritage and tradition of the games um by accident i ended up uh, getting into the bunker mm-hmm. on the 6th at panmure which has a, a very discreet little sign at the side of it that just describes this as being ben hogan's bunker and and that fascinated me because i'm thinking well i'm in there and hogan what, what's the story behind this um and i decided that i wanted to know more about how that was done um mm-hmm. And as soon as I started to do the research and identify why that bunker was there, um, it just opened up a world of sort of golfing research and heritage that that really did um, get me pointing in a different direction, really, because he he came over in 53, one of the, the few times that he actually travelled over to the UK, very... Um, prescriptive and focused in his approach and his practicing and he found that when he went to Carnoustie itself he was the, the wee man or the ice man as it was called was so well supported that the Scottish crowds were so enthused by his presence that he couldn't practice properly um, he was due to be staying in a, a hotel a relatively new hotel mm-hmm. nearby that had a shower but he was still recovering and rehabilitating from a uh, an almost fatal car crash where um, he'd been hit head on by a greyhound bus when in fog and he, he dived across his wife in order to protect her when the collision was about to occur but it, it meant that in order for him to be able to walk and to stave off any um uh, any issues with blood clots he had to have ice baths and this particular hotel didn't have a bath so they couldn't provide that so he, he flagged it as an issue and there was a, a fellow who was a, a member at panmure who was the owner of ncr cash registers um and he had a local guest house that had a bath and he ended up switching the rooms with um a an american reporter that had traveled over with ben hogan so the reporter ended up in the hotel with the shower and Hogan ended up at Panmure and was then given courtesy of the course. Uh, but he made such an impression on the locals with his humility um, that all the locals clubbed together and donated all their war rations in order to be able to provide him with steak that he needed because he needed the iron and he needed building up to be able to play. Um, and he was invited by the committee to go and have Mm. a a meal with the committee but at that particular time the professional at Panmure wasn't allowed in the clubhouse so he refused and had his meal with the steward and his wife in the kitchen with the door open with the committee members outside and there was all these stories that evolved and the reason why the bunker is named after him is that um, he, he suggested that the only 
addition or only change he would make to what he otherwise considered was a perfect golf course was the placement of a green of a bunker by the side of the sixth green and that was almost done immediately on his recommendation um there's a suggestion that uh, when he was being presented with the the open medal and he was being interviewed afterwards he was asked um what's your favorite golf hole by the reporter uh, the reporter obviously expected him to indicate somewhere at Carnoustie and his response was the sixth at Panmure, which wasn't widely reported for obvious reasons. But uh, very interesting character. And as soon as I started to reveal all of these facts and, and it literally, you've walked the same steps, <laughs> you're playing the same course, the tradition and the heritage that goes with it. For me, that's as exciting. Um, it, it really... It really is. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to stop waffling on about that now because <laughs> Pan, Panmure was a really seminal moment for me in my golfing education. It was wonderful. No, it sounds like it. And actually what we'll do is, you know, you have so much wonderful information that you've shared with us so far on the podcast. And there's so much stuff I would love to delve into for each of these destinations into greater detail. So what we'll do is, Andrew, if you are willing to come back in future, we will actually delve into have a specific Carnoustie Country podcast, have a specific Kent podcast, and also a Causeway Tour podcast as well, covering the likes of Royal Port Rush and Port Stewart and Castle Rock over the winter time. I think there's so much information there, so many great courses. You can offer so much uh, added detail uh, that really makes it uh, wonderfully illuminating and fascinating in there. It would be a shame to kind of cut that short. So in future, we'll do that in long form because I think there's so much potential there. But just moving on there, Andrew, it's like a little bit different. As I said there, we'll, t- we'll come on to the likes of uh, Carnoustie Country in more detail in future, the Causeway Tour in more detail in future, and also the likes of, a. Uh, you've also been to All Woodley and Moortown recently in Yorkshire, playing the Alistair McKenzie courses there. We can certainly have an Alistair McKenzie-themed episode in future as well, and we'll do so. I think there's so much uh, potential there. Over the winter time, to have a, a full Andrew Picken Golf Shake podcast series. But before that, and people who have been following Golf Shake on social media, or they read the website, or they follow Andrew, indeed, on Twitter... Uh, they'll be seeing a lot of uh, stuff recently around the First World War. And Andrew has been putting together this fascinating project, this series of articles that have been published on Golf Shake around golf's connection uh, to the First World War, which, of course, as many of you will be aware, coming up towards Armistice Day, that will be the centenary of the end of the First World War in 1918. So obviously there's historical significance to that there. And Andrew, you've been researching so much of this stuff uh, recently, uh, meeting a variety of fascinating people, going to different destinations and venues and finding out their individual connection, these golf clubs, their connection to the First World War, the members that they had who went and fought in the conflict were killed or came back injured and uh, the stories, their individual stories. It's, it's wonderfully fascinating because golf courses, I think, have a, a long-standing part of communities. that are, They've been there for generations, so they have a wonderful story through, you know, a succession of people through the years and a big part of that story is of course indeed both world wars but specifically the first world war so we'll certainly link uh, to that the series on golf that we have is a wartime history of golf and golf we have four articles there there will certainly be more coming in future this is a, a fantastic project which we'll actually delve into andrew in a future podcast in far more detail we can get even more insight behind that into what your journey has been in your research and so on but I want to touch on just quickly with you, 
you know, what inspired you to get involved with this in the first place? Why, where does your passion for this subject come from? I know your parents had a, a real history with the Royal British Legion through the years. So can you share that with us and tell us as to why researching this has been such a wonderful experience for you? Yeah, yeah, with, with pleasure. Um, it, I suppose it came back at the beginning of the season. I, I sort of identified some goals that I wanted to do. One of the things I wanted to do was to expose myself to playing with better golfers. And the, the way in which I thought would be a good way to do that was be to, to try and increase the number of pro-ams that I play in, but with actual professional team captains. Um, and it was uh, it was an event at Hollingwell when I saw a um, a, a little picture with some medals in a frame that was by the war memorial that was displayed um, obviously very well cared for nice and shiny been dusted over many years and I, I was just intrigued because I recognized that there was a military cross was one of the medals um, and I just wanted to know more about the character and decided to do some research and once I did that research and identified who William Lyle Rockley was and his history and biography and the circumstances of his death um, having lost both of my parents recently uh, I thought that it would be a really nice way that I could pay tribute to them um, they were both members of the British Legion between them for 77 years. Uh, my father was um, disabled for a number of years, but it, it didn't stop him. Um, he, he worked as a volunteer with the Legion and was personally responsible for the collection of over four million pounds for the poppy appeal. And he was the... Um, the county-wide coordinator for the Poppy Appeal within Derbyshire and in 2016 was um, honoured by Her Majesty the Queen with the British Empire Medal in recognition of the work that he did. Um, he very much over the years explained to me the value of the Legion and what it does for service men and women and the support, the practical support that he was able to give. So it, having started on this journey by accident by finding the medals and the story of William La Rockley I, it just occurred to me that as a tribute to him and my mum to be able to um, to do some work and identify links from golf to World War One and its forthcoming centenary would be an interesting proposition I then discovered that the the British Legion are running a, a, a website in um, partnership with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission where the 1.1 million souls who sacrificed their lives during World War One, every every individual has a biographical register within this everyone remembered and that came about as a result of a 14 year old schoolgirl who was visiting the War Graves in France and she asked the question why is it that some of the graves have poppies but others are un don't and surely everyone should be remembered and the concept was was uh, put together that the Royal British Legion would become the um, would try and take the lead in relation to the recognition of the centenary of the armistice and try and put together a project that would ensure that everyone was in fact remembered um, and looking into that as a project 
and being able to identify individuals and be able to to bring to life some of the stories and have that recorded initially the idea was just recorded within golf shake but what we're now doing is we're developing a formal partnership with the royal british legion and the material that we're uncovering and the stories that we're detailing actually are, are quite an important social archive and history and those records will now become available for future generations to search so that if um people within their history and researchers discover that there was a connection to golf that there is a link into there and I, I did some work around war memorials and there were umpteen war memorials were produced by golf clubs in recognition of the members who went to war and didn't return um, and it, it's a piece of work that's been fascinating to be able to be involved in and um, I'm really pleased that um, Golf Shake are prepared to allow me the latitude to do this kind of research and it's i've been very very pleasantly surprised at the response so far because the the response from people reading it has been overwhelmingly positive um just the, the story of john parr who was the the very first casualty in world war one um, he was a young man who was a caddy at, at North Middlesex who managed to persuade the caddy master to lie mm -hmm. in support of him in his application form to go to war, to volunteer. He was one of um, 11 in his family, but there were only uh, himself and three others survived because of the level of poverty that they were living in at the time. Uh, and so the caddy master and he both lied in his application and he went to war and um, was signed up to a reconnaissance cycling squadron of all things um, and was the very first casualty in World War One. And I've been able to unearth um, some stories relating to him and the fact that North Middlesex are, are recognising his contribution uh, and the heritage and traditions and um, and the importance of the sacrifice that these people paid. Uh, and there's so many things that we do now that's built on that sacrifice. Uh, and to have that recognition and the fact that these people, are, uh, you know, these individuals who were incredibly brave, um, being remembered and acknowledged, I, I think is quite important because one of the the big lessons that my my dad always taught me he he developed a program where he would go into primary schools and he would talk to the children about the poppy and the poppy appeal and what it stood for and what it signified and the fact that it's not a political symbol it's um it's something that all individuals can pay respect and remember the sacrifice uh, of those who went before because without their sacrifice we wouldn't be enjoying the life that we lead today no absolutely and uh, i think the the work that you've done so far has been just in incredible tremendous and uh, fascinating to read through and uh, we see we'll link this to the articles in golf that are already there the wartime history of golf uh, with andrew pickett and, you know there's four articles there telling the story of of john parr first of all and then moving on from that to a variety of other places you've been to starting with uh, holland well of course and then moving on from there and telling the story of these uh, men who were passed away and were killed during the first world war and uh, and they're still being commemorated by these golf clubs to this day it's a wonderful thing and any more awareness we can bring to that is uh, obviously something we're very happy to support and um, 
we will in future you know discuss this in, in greater detail i think it's a a very interesting story, a very relevant one, and again, it's, it shows kind of the, the unique status that, that golf can have and what it has had through the years in communities and history. And um, it's something that's certainly worth exploring. And we absolutely applaud what you've done so far, Andrew, with this. And I think people who have read the articles have enjoyed them and have found them fascinating and illuminating. And uh, there'll be more of that to come in the near, near future. So if you're listening to this for the first time, you haven't yet heard about these articles or read them, you can go and find them on the Golf Shake website we'll link to them on the golf shake uh, podcast link and also you can find them regularly shared on the, the golf shakes show, social channels as well particularly leading into obviously armistice day coming up very soon as well so andrew as i said there you know we have so many topics to start this podcast and i sort of feared this would be possible where it'd be very difficult to constrain everything into a reasonable time period so that is become the case so what i think we'll have to do is if you're perfectly happy to do so is come back in future and delve into the topics we've touched on today in greater detail in future talk about golf in kent in greater detail golf in carnoustie and obviously uh, the causeway tour in northern ireland as well and of course indeed coming back to this topic uh, on the war memorials and, and the wartime history of golf so Andrew, I, I have to thank you for coming on to the Golf Sheet podcast today. It's been a really, really interesting discussion. I've just sat back and I've, I've enjoyed having this knowledge wash over me. I feel it's educational and illuminating. So, Andrew, thank you for this. I hope you've enjoyed your time on the Golf Sheet podcast. And hopefully you'll come back in future. Yeah, yeah? absolutely, Kieran. As, as my mum used to say, I've got more rattle than a can of marbles. <laughs> hey, there you go. And that is, that is a slogan to remember this weekend, everybody. That's certainly the case. And uh, we'll certainly have Andrew back in future. So, but of course, if you've enjoyed listening uh, to this, we'll have more of Andrew in future. Uh, so his articles for all these particular topics covered today are on the Golf Shake website. And of course, in November time, indeed, the golf clubs have been, for many of you, put away, I guess, over the winter. But we have a nice, lovely, sunny, crisp day in the winter. There can be no better time of year to play golf. So if you are continuing to play golf over the winter months, do keep tracking your rounds and your scores on the Golf Shake Score Tracker and the website. And also keeping track of your playing handicap over the winter, keeping your game in check over the winter season, building into next spring so you get a, a head start on your friends and fellow members at golf clubs to get out there and uh, keep your game going over the winter time. So as always, everybody, we thank you for listening to the Golf Shake podcast. My name is Kieran Clark. This week, joined by Golf Shake ambassador, Andrew Pickin. And as always in Golf Shake, we want you to keep playing and play more and play better. Until next time, thank you for listening.